Good morning. Well, I am Cathy Rentenbrink and it is a delight to be here in this tent. And I hope it wasn't a last minute shock to anyone that there's been a slight change of personnel. But um, if I had to sum up Patrick Gale in just a few words, it could be Patrick Gale never disappoints. So <laughs> I'm sure that will be true today as that, it always is. That makes the change from Patrick Gale, the gay Joanna Trollope. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I told her that when she was here last, mm. and she did see the funny side. <laughs> well, there are, I'm sure there are worse things to be. Um, so it's very nice to be here, isn't it? What a thrill to be in this festival, back in this beautiful, this beautiful marquee, and with all you lovely people. I'm still absolutely blissed out at just being in real life, seeing real people. I won't, because it would be peculiar, but I'd very happily run up to all of you and just give you a really nice stroke. Um, <laughs> so maybe if I just sort of express that emotionally, then it should hopefully hold me back from, you know, being inappropriate later. But it's very, very, very nice to see you all and be here with you all. Patrick, another wonderful novel. Um, so Patrick's mo novel, Mother's Boy, is out next March. So because of the circumstances, we have this sort of special advance... Uh, preview and amazingly the bookshop have said they can sell it to you but you just can't take it home with you but they will do <laughs> advanced copies and i guarantee i will sign them for you and you will get them next march so so that's rather nice isn't it yeah so i have the advanced copy here which i read to interview patrick and you've um, read that in the bath haven't you i can tell i have <laughs> So don't, don't hate me. It's a very watery book, so it did feel fitting to immerse myself with it and then slightly immerse the corner with it. But isn't it just utterly beautiful? I think already I just did fall in love, actually, before reading a word. I love the imagery on the front. And then you can see here what the final thing is going um, to look like. And I just love that boy and the sea, Patrick. So I wonder, perhaps, we could talk or, talk, start maybe with... Cornwall, because you have this great relationship with Cornwall as a person and as a novelist. Maybe just start there Yes, for us. and it's, it's special that we're having this conversation right here, because St Andelian is the reason I live in Cornwall. Um, I first came to the very first Easter music festival here when I was a little boy in order to, to sing a few treble solos, because um, I was at choir school and my teachers were involved in the festival. And I came back that summer to sing at the summer festival and I just fell in love with this place, very specifically this place and the immediate surroundings and Polzeth Beach and all that. And then for, didn't forget about it, but parceled it away. And then years later at 25, um, when I had a chance to come back to North Cornwall and I didn't yet own anywhere, I didn't live anywhere. And I suddenly realized this is where I want to live. And I can afford a house with three bedrooms and a garden in Camelford for <laughs> £45,000, which I certainly couldn't have bought in London. Um, so I'm, I'm hugely indebted to St Andelian. It's, it's sort of, although I live two hours away in the far west, this remains my kind of magnetic, my magnetic north, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And when did you start wanting to write about Cornwall and start putting Cornwall into Well, I did work. it straight away. My very first novel is set at... Um, a, a highly fictionalised version of the St Andelian Music Festivals. I, I call it Trinellian rather than St Andelian. I do all sorts of weird stuff. As, you know how it is with the first novel, you don't think it's going to be published, so you write mad stuff, and then it comes back to haunt you by staying in print, um, <laughs> if you're lucky. Uh, yeah, so I know I very quickly started writing about Cornwall, and it 
but I wrote about it, I've written about it more and more as I've, as I've got more and more embedded here, because when I first started writing, I wasn't living in Cornwall, I was living in London, and it was like a fairyland. And then in my later books, once I started living here, I very consciously wanted to write about real Cornwall, so not the Daphne du Maurier highly mm. kind of embroidered and rather romanticized version, but you know, the poor Cornwall, the Cornwall of day-old bread and broken biscuits. Um, which is a very neat segue into the subject of this book, because this book is extremely Cornish because it's about one of Cornwall's great poets, Charles Causley, and his mother, and Charles's childhood, and they were very poor. She was a laundress, and she was raising him on her own. Um, so I had to do a lot of research into, basically, you know, the lives of poor people in Lanson, as they'd have called it, Launston, as visitors call it, up the road here. Um, Sorry, and I probably jumped ahead to your fourth question. It's very that. good. I mean, I did say, when I was telling my husband about the change of personnel, I did say, Patrick's very easy, though. He's so articulate. I'll basically just sit there and he'll interview Press himself. Press the on so. button. <laughs> <laughs> it's never a difficult gig. Very good-natured, very articulate. Um, take us, tell us a bit about... I mean, one of the, I loved everything about the novel. One of the things I did enjoy was I do like a novel that teaches me something in a non-heavy-handed way. You know, I hey. love to learn whilst reading fiction. And I really enjoyed learning about Causey because yeah. I didn't know very much. No, so people don't. Maybe start us off with why yes. you were drawn. He's one of my hobby horses. Um, not just because I'm, I'm now honoured to be one of the patrons of the Charles Causey Trust, along with a real live poet, Andrew Motion. I'm not a poet, but I've always loved his work. Um, Partly, I think, because he's like a novelist, Monquet. If any of you don't know his poetry, it's enormously accessible. Um, and quite a few of the poems are narrative. And one of his great gifts, um, which would have stood him in very good stead had he carried on trying to write novels, is his, his characterization. He can do a thumbnail sketch in two lines of a poem, and you see that strange little girl, or angry man, or whatever. They're, they're there on the page. Um, and I feel really strongly that more people should read poetry, but especially more people in Cornwall should cherish Causley. If I had my way, everyone with a Cornish postcode would have the complete works of Causley <laughs> sent to them at Christmas, because he is, he is enhancing. Um, but also, he is the anti-John Betjeman. Uh, lots of people, they go, John Betjeman is the Cornish poet. Well, he's not. He was a Highgate poet with a, who moved to Cornwall. He was a, Betjeman is the laureate of the incomer, and yes, North Cornwall is full of incomers, but Causley was Cornish born and bred, and he was never, ever going to be the kind of professional teddy bear that Betjeman became. Causley's work is not cosy. It's uncomfortable. It's prickly. Even his poems for children have thorns in them, which is why he's so special, I think. Um, uh, but, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting now. I'll stop ranting. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's always very engaging to hear anybody talk but, but, about But I specifically, passion. I wanted to, I think because I'm not a poet, I wanted to write about how, try to imagine how he became one. Mm -hmm. So this is not a novel about a poet. It's a novel about a man who um, actually wants to be um, Noel Coward or a pianist or both. Um, when, when Causley started writing, he wrote plays as, as a teenager and as a young man. And amazingly, one of them was even broadcast by the BBC, and several of them were published. Little one-act plays were published for amateur performance. But also he played the piano, and that was my way in. I always have to find a way in with my characters. One thing I have 
in common with them. And I was a really keen pianist as a child, um, to the point of thinking I would be a professional musician. Yeah, fat chance. <laughs> amazingly, amazingly, Charles's mother, Laura, who was a laundress, she was not rich, somehow scrabbled together the money to buy little Charles an upright piano. And they were living on one of the back streets of Launceston in the really poor bit then, where all the factories and tanneries were. And um, they lived in a tenement, a really, really small little apartment. And I've met old men and women in Launceston who, as children, sat on the pavement outside because of this wonder of a piano. They'd never had piano music. And there was Charles playing all sorts of stuff, Bach and Scarlatti and, and dance tunes. Um, and I found that really magical, this, this sense. I think a lot of writers, when you scratch the surface and talk to them about their childhoods, you, they often say, oh, I wasn't a writer. I was going to be a ballet dancer, or I was going to be an actor, or whatever. I think a lot of us have this deep need for an audience or for some, something performative. And it takes a while to find its focus in writing. Often it'll begin, begin as something else. So I, I wanted to be a musician, and then I wanted to be an actor. And writing was something I did but didn't take seriously. But I, I, it kind of took me by surprise. And I think the same happens with Charles. And I think he became a poet because of the war. Uh, I think the war changed him forever, as it did for a lot of people. On that note, then, shall we have a little reading? Let's plunge in. OK, <laughs> um, I'm going to read you uh, Cathy's request, the very beginning of the book, because in theory that needs no explanation. But the beginning of the book does plunge you right into the heart of the war. Um, and just before that, I will read the little extract of a Causley poem. This is a poem of his which was never published, or only very briefly in a magazine. <laughs> and I think it's one of those poems he suppressed because um, he's a bit exposed in it. And it's a very, uh, it's a, a very heavily influenced by Auden. This was written in the 1930s when he was devouring everything Auden wrote didn't yet know he was going to be a poet. And it's kind of a, I'll only read you one stanza, but it's a poem about um, kind of sexual disgust and sexual horror, and also neighborhood horror. This is a poem by a boy who is stuck in a very small town where everyone knows everyone else's business. It's called Never Take Sweets from a Stranger. Watch your hurt heart when it wavers. Keep your clay cool on the shelf. Avoid other flesh and its flavors. Keep yourself to yourself. Atlantic, 1941. The ship was under attack and horribly exposed by a clear night and a full moon. Until a change in the weather brought fog or cloud, ideally both, all they could do was fight back and hope they were not outnumbered or outgunned. Sometimes an explosion would shake them from so close that Charles almost forgot in his stifled terror to feel sick. Sometimes the sounds of their guns going off or the shouts and stamping boots of their crewmates would stop long enough to let them hear the piercing cry of someone wounded. Signals came through constantly, so there was no time to do anything but deal with them, and certainly none to talk. Talk was impossible in any case, because Dizzy had his headphones on. These meant that when he swore, as he sometimes did, when the ship was especially badly shaken, 
He did so at the top of his voice, which made Charles jump almost more than the explosions did. Occasionally, the speaker tube's thin, peeping sound would summon Charles to receive instructions from the bridge or be asked to make a report on the latest signals to come through. They worked at fever pitch in the hot little office, Dizzy barely turning from his console to flick signals he deciphered from Morse across to Charles so that he would decode them into something like English. Dizzy had said once that Morse was enough for him to focus on and that it would have scrambled his brains if he'd attempted to guess the meanings hidden beneath the second layer of code. He passed Charles neatly filled out pages from his pad, lines of letters and numbers, always in groups of four. Charles knew to resist the urge to interpret or anticipate. Accuracy was all. He decoded four letters or digits at a time and only read to check for sense once he had the whole signal down. Sometimes it would be gibberish and he would know that Dizzy or whoever had sent the, the, the message on to him was tired. In this case, he swiftly recognized the code shorthand for a powerful battle cruiser. He knew before getting two words further in the missive that this was one he'd need to take to the bridge in person at once, rather than shouting it to a junior officer through the voice tube. He tore the page off his pad, folded it neatly, and tucked it into his pocket to protect it from spray. As he pulled on his duffel coat, Charles tapped Dizzy's shoulder and pointed upwards so he'd know he was heading to the bridge, then stepped out. The cold on deck was a shock after the heat generated by all the electrical kit in the signals office but it was the painful intensity of the noise that momentarily confused him. The enemy ship they had engaged had approached from the starboard and they must have swung round to present a narrower target. Charles could see both forward guns blasting shells into the darkness. The weather was changing, thank God. Poor visibility might soon give them cover to slip away to the south. The swell was such that he was amazed the guns could be aimed with any accuracy. Climbing to the bridge, he knew to avoid looking out at the sea for fear of making his sickness worse, but even so, he had to pause a moment before climbing further as a judder of nausea ran through him, making him dry heave over the railings and break out in a sweat the Atlantic wind immediately chilled. There was never mayhem on the bridge but the sense of group focus was intense. It was known that because of the, the skipper's slight deafness, he would tolerate no unnecessary talk. Charles saluted and handed over the signal. He waited to attention while it was passed to the skipper and the skipper read. Often there was a signal to send in reply, but this time the skipper simply shook his head, betraying nothing of the horrors he had just read. Back to your watch, Causley he said, then checked Charles's leaving. Causley, sir, did you know anyone on board? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. You know the drill, though, not a word. Which was when an explosion lit up the night and caused several of them to lose their balance and grab at the nearest handhold. One of the officers swore. Off you trot, one of them told Charles, as the skipper calmly demanded damage reports. The fire crew 
was tackling a blaze on the deck, while the MO and his small team were pulling the wounded to safety. Everyone seemed to be yelling, and one of the wounded was crying out in a thin, high voice, as though astounded by the pain he was in. The MO was followed by two sailors, sorry, the MO was following two sailors who were stretching one of the wounded to the sick bay, when he cursed roundly and turned. Causley, good man, bring that for me. Charles looked where he was pointing. It was a hand and part of a forearm, cleanly severed, smeared with oil, a dusting of golden hair on the skin. It wore both a wedding ring and a wristwatch. Charles froze. Come on, man, we've not got all day. Charles picked up the hand by its wrist, averting his eyes the moment he made contact with the skin and hurried it over to the stretcher where the MO received it on a napkin of bandage before heading inside with a shattered patient. There was another terrific blast of shellfire as Charles staggered into the nearest heads to throw up. A boyhood friend, his best friend, arguably, had been on the ship in the signal he'd just delivered, reported sunk in the Denmark Strait with only three survivors, and he could tell nobody. Now it seemed quite possible they were to be blasted out of the water as well. Charles washed his hands and face, then sat on the heads for a moment, stilling his breathing. He conjured the greenish midsummer water of a small municipal swimming pool, the soapy smell of the rough beach towel beneath him, birdsong from surrounding trees, the artless chatter of the friend lying in the sun at his side. The wars. We've yeah. got two wars, haven't we? Yes, it's quite novel. a little epic, this book, um, because it begins in the glorious summer before the Great War, First War, broke out, uh, because Charles's mother, Laura, was then in service in Tynmouth um, as a sort of undercook and maid of all work. Um, and there she met and fell in love with and married his father, who was uh, a, a groom for a nearby doctor. So I had great fun trying to piece that together. But then almost immediately what happened to poor Laura is that her husband was called up, or he signed up, and was sent to the front and was delivered um, a shattered man. He, like a lot of men, I had no idea about this, a great many soldiers in the Great War contracted TB because they were caught in gas attacks which weakened their lungs, and then TB was rife in the trench hospitals. Um, and in fact, one of my great aunts, who was a, a minor character in my novel, A Place Called Winter, caught TB in much the same way. She was a nurse out there, and that was, that was where she caught the TB, unknowns to her, which then killed her. So we, we have the Great War at the beginning of the novel, and then I suppose about halfway through, the Second World War comes along, and Charles, by this point, was working in the electricity board, one of two terrible jobs his mother pushed upon him when she dragged him out of school aged 15. Um, and he signed up initially thinking he could be, there was something called a writer. And he thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll be a writer. That sounds like a nice, safe job to be in the Navy. Um, but actually what they made him was a coder, which was then a very, very new post. Um, and it wasn't decoding. It wasn't Bletchley Park style breaking of codes. It was simply the very, very swift decoding and recoding of messages that would come in in two forms of code, as he caught out in that, in that piece there. So it would come through 
in the first code and then into the Morse code, and then one man would take it out of the Morse and Charles would then put it into English and then so it would go back. And it, it required incredible discipline to do this work under speed, under attack frequently, and then poor Charles, as again you gathered there, was chronically seasick. I mean, so seasick. Most sailors get seasick and then get over it. Charles was one of the poor ones who really wasn't seasick. I mean, never, never got out of it. And um, his first skipper very sweetly uh, referred him and you know, passed him on to a land job with a little note saying, not suitable for, for small ships, because they were the worst. <laughs> and so he, he then got to work in Gibraltar um, for quite a while and then came back to England and taught coding, mainly to girls, actually, in, in the Rens um, up near Liverpool, and then went to sea again, but in a really big ship, in one of the great um, aircraft carriers to the Pacific, where he witnessed the one of the several Japanese um, surrenders. There, there were two or three mm. you know, in swift succession. Um, so it's, it, it's a book about a man from a very small place who witnesses very big things, I suppose. And you write a lot about mothers and sons. I, I think I do, yes. Yeah. I've, always, I've always been a sucker for <laughs> <laughs> motherhood. Um, and, yeah. and I was wondering whether the relationship between Charles and his mother, which is really central to the novel, I was wondering whether you knew that and that drew you to the, drew you to the subject, or is it the way in which you look at the world is that that is then what you saw? Does that make sense? And I also think you write about Laura with great... Uh, sympathy, empathy, love, mm. and I can I can imagine someone else looking at the bare bones and not having such a compassionate portrait of her. Well, I felt she'd been rather overlooked. Um, there is only one biography. Astonishingly, there is not a scholarly, proper, critical biography of Charles Causley yet. So, if, if there is a biographer in the room looking for the next subject, I mean, he needs Hermione Lee. He needs mm -hmm. somebody to do a really in-depth biography. There is a biography out there, but it's very partial and it skates over the things that interested me the most. Um, I knew with this, when I decided I was going to write a book about him, I knew I had to honor all the facts. And Laura is one of the big facts. And for me, the most intriguing aspect to his story, I mean, as I said, she was, she was a laundress, she was barely literate. Um, and yet somehow she gave birth to this man who quite clearly, even as a child, was something of a genius. And I found very early on when I was thinking, I hadn't yet committed to writing it, I found this lovely photograph of, a couple of photographs of her and Charles when he was still, when one he's a baby, and in one he's a little bit older. And in the baby one, he has this very unbabyish look. You know, how many of some babies just have this really intelligent, curious <laughs> look? And he is just looking around, and she is looking at the baby as if to say, oh my God, you know, <laughs> what is this thing? Um, and I, his, his poetry is so deeply characterized, and it's so full of uh, what you could broadly call country wisdom. Now, that sounds really patronizing, but it's, it's a wisdom you don't get from books. It's a wisdom you get from life. And I thought, well, he must have got that from Laura, because his father dies when he's only seven years old. So the father is always going to be an ideal figure to him, but not a real figure, really. Laura must have been a huge influence. So I knew in order to tackle the subject, I had to do her justice. And then I suddenly realized actually what I was doing was writing a, a, a two-point-of-view novel. Mm. So Laura has half the novel, and he has the other half, and I had to sort of divvy them up. And then, of course, I started looking, uh, you know, I, this always happens. You think you're writing a book about a person, and then you think, oh, bloody hell, I've got two world wars to write <laughs> about. All this research. 
And I then started looking at what happened in Launceston during the Second World War. And I thought, oh God, it's quite a boring place. Paul, what stories can I find for Laura? And then I looked and my word, Launceston had so much going on because it had um, this invasion of GIs. Like most Cornish market towns, it was effectively an American base before um, you know, D-Day. And it had, as we gathered, and, and you came to the Cream of Cornish session, it had a black GI mutiny. Um, so there were, there were race, there was a big race story. It had German prisoners of war. It had Italian prisoners of war. So I thought, I've got no problem with Laura. She's got masses of story. Um, <laughs> I then had to look at Charles and find enough story for him. And that was really interesting because there is an archive. And I had access to the archive at Exeter University. And I ruined what was left of my eyesight, pawing over hundreds of tiny, tiny, very private diaries Charles kept right up until the point, long after the point where the, the army and the navy would have, had they known, they'd have confiscated them and shouldn't have been keeping them at all. And they're written in tiny, tiny handwriting. And most of them are incredibly dull. And then every now and then, some huge thing jumps out at you. And one of the things that jumped out at me was when he was talking about, uh, aged about 21, I suppose, a day trip to Plymouth with his best friend, Ginger. And I had my doubts about Ginger's sexuality anyway by this point. But then when they go to Plymouth, they uh, go up onto the hoe and they be Charles becomes fixated on this vision of sunbathing sailors. The hoe is just covered <laughs> with sunbathing sailors. And all Charles writes at that point in the diary um, is, oh, how I wished I could draw, exclamation mark. And I thought, yeah, okay, um, a heterosexual man wouldn't have written that. But I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And I carried on through the archives. And then I found this letter, which Charles had kept to his dying day, which again, it was just like a re big red flag. Um, it was a letter from a fellow officer from the coding station uh, up in HMS Kabbalah. It was a, a stone frigate, as the Navy calls them. So uh, uh, it's like a boat, but it's on land, where they were training coders up near Liverpool. And this officer writes to Charles um, saying, basically, dear Charles, thank you for your letter. I can only hope my wife didn't open the envelope before she forwarded it to me. I thought, oh, what's this? Um, and then he goes on to say, basically, I'm really grateful to you for everything we did together and all the experiences we had together. But you must understand, I am now a married man, and I cannot talk about this. Um, you must not write about this anymore. Um, so I thought, aha, OK. So what I then did was to use that letter and that diary entry and also several of Charles's poems as my way of mm. portraying uh, what I think is a secret emotional arc in his life. Um, and the secrecy is totally understandable because anyone gay um, at that period, you know, they, they had a lot of freedom during the war. You gay men and lesbians, there are many diaries and letters and memoirs that make it clear that the war was hugely liberating to them because they got taken away from their very insular little market towns and villages, saw the world and met very different people to the people their parents had only introduced them to. And Charles was no exception, but the war ends and certainly the men in that group came back to an England that was as homophobic and brutally repressive, officially repressive as it ever was. So Charles basically comes back to Launceston at just the time when um, you know, the men were being really 
uh, sent to prison in huge numbers mm -hmm. simply for being gay. So I thought, okay, that's a perfect, that's all the explanation I need. And then I kept finding these accounts of people asking Charles to write his memoirs when he was an old man. And he kept giving the same response, which was, it's all in the poems. I don't need to write it because it's all in the poems. So I then went back to the poems and picked through them. And there are one or two poems which, given that he was a professional coder, I thought, okay, it's here. He's, he's hiding in plain sight. And there's one in particular called Angel Hill. Angel Hill was the little back street where Charles ended up living with Laura. He lived with Laura. She was the love of his life, his mother, and he lived with her till her dying day. And their last house was on this street called Angel Hill, which is the steepest street in Launceston. And um, the poem is a ballad, like a lot of his poems. It tells a story. And in the story, this man, who is a former shipmate of the narrator, turns up on the doorstep unexpectedly and basically says, remember me, remember what we used to do together. And all the way through, the, the refrain is the narrator saying, no, no, it wasn't me, you've got the wrong man. It's a kind of ever more panicked denial. And the visitor, who may or may, may not be dead, he might be a ghost, you're never quite sure, gets more and more insistent and says, there's a line, I bound your wounds and you bound mine. And he goes on to say, Basically, we promised each other that if after the war we were both still unclaimed, we would be united. And again, the narrator says, no, 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 go away. But as the sailor walks away, he whistles and he says, yeah, I shall come for you one fine day. And I think that poem, I'm, I'm sure it's based on some little narrative, something that happened in real life. And so I made that my aim point for the book. The book mm -hmm. aim, ends with the scene that would have inspired to my mind, the writing of that poem, mm -hmm. when one of Charles's shipmates, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but one of the shipmates shows up unexpectedly on the doorstep. It's profoundly satisfying. That's, <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'll say. I mean, I, I read a lot of novels, and I love a lot of novels. More and more these days, there's something, I've developed this new way of thinking about it, but when I finish a book, I want that feeling where you go like that on the last page, and then you sort of go like, oh, that sort of feeling. Very, very much, very much you get that when you reach the end of the book. Um, is it hard, Patrick? Because um, I've thought about that a lot. I've thought about the freedoms that were granted to people during mm. the war, um, especially anybody who wanted to live a, a less conventional life yeah. in whatever way. And when I try to fictionalise that or think my way into it, I find it really difficult to think, to, to kind of almost like lose the lens of... Uh, the modern world and what it allows and kind of it does feel almost like diving underwater to, to scrabble back yeah. to, to, to think okay here's Charles in 1945 these are the choices that he would have made and that the, the downside of pursuing the downside of saying to the returned comrade okay then let's shack up together in Truro you, <laughs> you know that that sort of thing do you do you put yourself through those gymnastics how does that bit work yes no I do and a lot of it is is um a lot of the process for me is, is this constant asking myself, what did he know and what mm. didn't he know? And the very useful thing with Charles's little tiny diaries is the, he's such a swat as a teenager. And he writes down every book he reads and does a little review of the mm. book he reads. So I, I, could, I could see the way his mind was growing and his sense of himself was growing as he grew because he was reading all the kind of the bad book, the books he shouldn't have been reading. He was reading Isherwood. Mm. Um, you know, he reads Mr. Norris Changes Trains. 
And I thought, my God, that must have come as a bombshell to this sheltered boy suddenly reading about this sinful life in Berlin where women dress like men and men dress like women and anything goes. Um, and then I, I, I found myself also thinking, well, what was possible? And, and so much was possible during the war and so little was possible to him afterwards. And his choices immediately after the war, I think, are very interesting because the first big choice is he decides to take up the offer because he hadn't gone to university. He never went to university. Um, and that was a lifelong, not a scar exactly, but a, he had a lifelong sense of not quite being in the club. So even when he was among the great and good and he'd been uh, you know, rewarded by the Queen and he was hobnobbing with Ted Hughes, he was always the one who had never been to uni. Um, so where was I going with that? Yeah, he, uh, one of his decisions he made was to take up this um, offer that was made to all returning servicemen and women of, of some kind of higher education paid for, and he opted to train as a teacher. And not just any teacher, he opted to train as a primary school teacher and then to come back and be the teacher in the little tiny national school where he had gone as a little boy. So he was choosing to move hardly anywhere. Yeah. And then he chose to live with Laura. So this is a man who has seen the world, who has seen horrific scenes during the war, choosing to come back to the safest possible place, which is with mum and teaching little children. So it's, it's an interesting choice. And it's not, in a way, it's a weirdly immature choice. It's almost like, almost like the, the, the equivalent of somebody developing anorexia so that they will reverse puberty. It, it's quite strange. And when I've spoken to adults who were taught by him, and by all accounts, he was the most brilliant primary school teacher. And what a lot of them said was part of it was they didn't feel he was entirely grown up himself. Mm -hmm. He never lost that eye of childhood. And his communication with the children was very direct. And his way of infecting them with a love of poetry, especially, was really effective. So I, I've met quite a few kind of quite grumpy old Cornish men who said that the one thing he gave me was a love of poetry <laughs> and I was I, 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 I never thought I would but yeah but very sweet but the living with his mother was interesting too because I think when you see the houses they lived in and, and Cypress Well their last house the house on Angel Hill is now owned by the Charles Corsby Trust and it's not open to the public because it's too tiny but every now and then they do open it on a special day during the festival it's tiny it's a two up two down and Laura had the room, her domain was the room you walk into immediately when you come through the front door. And Charles's study was beyond Laura. So Laura was his gatekeeper. And I think she sat there in a sturdy armchair by the fire looking at the front door. And she vetted people. And I think you didn't get to him without passing through her. And when she died, he, I think, had a nervous breakdown. Though no one at the time recognised it as that. They just said he's taking her death very badly. But I think he goes to pieces completely. He stops teaching. He stops writing. He has a terrible kind of crisis. And I think part of that was he suddenly realised, I've got to grow up now. I've got to, I've got to don the suit of manhood. Mm -hmm. um, and it's no longer, it was no longer illegal to be gay. This is post-1968. Um, but in a way, he'd left it too late. And I think he boxed himself in. His persona, his public persona in Launceston was Mr. Causley, the schoolmaster, who's good to his mum. Mm. And it, it's a very interesting transition. He then does finally become this renowned poet who's often on the BBC. He was one of the few authentic Cornish voices you hear on old BBC broadcasts. 
but he continues to have this split life. So when he's home in Cornwall, he's very much a, a kind of professional Cornishman. And I think his only real freedom at that period came when he went on British Council tours abroad. So he would go off and be a, a grand writer, but in other countries where he could perhaps be himself. Mm. But I didn't dig too much into that period because I, I knew I wasn't going to be writing about mm -hmm. it. Um, tell us a bit about the research and about, do you have a sense, do you feel an obligation to the truth? Are you aiming for a version, an offering? Where, where, where do you situate yourself in that? I try, I'm trying to get at the truth that couldn't be written at the time. So I honour all the facts that are known. And some of the facts were you know, quite awkward. Um, but I had, I had very good hints, certainly about him. Laura, I'm, mo I'm most worried about Laura, because Laura, because she was so in the background and has been so little written about, um, and because he takes us so much for granted, because mm. she's just mum, I had to make up almost all of her. And yet she's the one with quite a lot of living relatives. So I'm ever so slightly nervous of formidable old Cornish women coming up to me saying, I'm a cousin of Laura's and you got it completely wrong. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I bend over backwards at the end of the book to explain, look, this is what you've just read is a novel. And I know this is not the truth necessarily. It may not be your truth. What I hope I've done, though, is to write a story that will be true for pe other people and get somewhere at the emotional truth of the situation. Mm -hmm. And because the only surviving relatives of Charles's are cousins and descendants of cousins, um, I consciously kept the, the wider family out of the book. Mm. So it, it does probably, I think to any of them reading the book, it will feel a bit hurtful, as though I'd pretended that he had no other wider family. But I did, just didn't want to upset them by putting their living relatives in there or whatever. Um, yeah, I've always thought it must be very odd being the relative of some luminary that you never knew. Mm. And I remember, one, I won't say it was, but I met someone who was the grandson of a big person at a celebration for the big person. And this chap, he was a very nice chap. I just thought, like, how odd to live your life in the shadow of this enormous person. And somebody read something. He said, oh, yes, he said, he would have loved that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you weren't born. You, were you born. didn't I know, know. Very strange. But that, yes, those, and I'd imagine creatively, again, that would just feel like a burden if you're imagining yeah. all that sort of thing. I, I was very lucky in the archive, though, because there are wonderful photographs. Mm -hmm. um, and the little snippets, Charles never wrote a memoir, but every now and then he will write a very short article. There's one article that was a, an inspiration for an entire chapter set just up the road from here because he and his mum every year went on Sunday school picnics and these were often to Polzeth. So the, the, the community would hire sharabangs and would be driven to Polzeth for the day. And he wrote very humorously, but also in a slightly traumatised way about the horror he had sort of love and horror of these occasions. The thing he particularly hated was the way the, the vicar at some point in the picnic would take a great big cake tin full of sweets and throw them up in the air for the delight of watching these often extremely poor children scrabbling for sweets in the sand. And this clearly disgusted Charles. There's a real anger to the way he writes about it. So I'd, that I then extrapolated from that and did a whole a sort of transitional scene where he's on the verge of puberty and there's this awful church picnic at Polzeth. But it's also a moment where he acquires one of his friends for life in an unexpected way. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask for audience questions. I'm just sort of tipping you off so you can emotionally <laughs> prepare. Um, 
so the last one I'll ask you for now, Patrick, is take us, I'm fascinated by the process, take us a bit more into this. So you find the thing about him writing about the vicar and the sweets. Yeah. Do you immediately think, aha, that's going to be chapter seven? Is this, uh, are you researching and writing at the same time? How's it, are you storyboarding? Uh, How's it working? It's very difficult. I, I, to start with, with the book, I, I wrote it the way the reader will read it. In other words, I would switch from a Charles chapter to a Laura chapter. And then I knew once the war hit, they would go their separate ways. And I, as a writer, went my separate way with each of them and wrote their separate journeys and then wove them together. Um, and I had a sense of the trajectory and I knew the book would end where it would end. So I knew it had to be paced in a certain way. Um, and then I think it's a matter of looking for the story, the bits of story that would answer the reader's emotional needs at certain points. So that there's a point where I knew I had to show Charles um, being bullied as a very little boy and how that would play out. And the big decision there, because he writes, a, a, we know from one of his poems that the butcher's son um, used to beat him up in the playground. So I thought, okay, the butcher's son will become a character in the book, but might not be quite the way you expect. And the big decision was deciding whether to tell that story from Charles's point of view or Laura's. And then I, I decided that actually it works better from Laura's because we get an adult view of a child trauma mm. and it will radiate out into a better understanding of Laura's position in the community. It was a kind of jigsaw, really. Um, and I kept going back to the poems to look for, for help. And there's a wonderful thumbnail sketch in one of the poems, Demolition Order, of the local, the town prostitute. And I know actually from talking to an old guy in, in Launceston um, that there was a mother and daughter um, set up there. That Well, the mother was the, the town tart and then the daughter really came into her own when all the GIs arrived and was nicknamed the Black Bomber. So I never quite understand, but the, apparently the mother and daughter both got very good fur coats before the end of the war. Um, so I knew I wanted to make that mother and daughter characters in the book. And then I tried to find a way of making them friends of Laura's because one of the few details we glean from Charles's writing about Laura is that she was completely not, very unexpectedly for such a fervent Christian, she was not judgmental mm -hmm. and she didn't like people standing in judgment on others, especially if they were doing it with the church's backing. Mm. So there's a, there's a very interesting, with both of them, this interplay between what for Charles was, was overt socialism um, as a young man, he would belong to the Socialist Book Club. And for Laura was a kind of natural socialism. So she would, she would never have allied herself to any political party. And she only regarded herself as a Christian. But her outlook clearly was um, naturally mm -hmm. socialist in terms. I mean, she was, she was a great defender of the poor. She was a woman who I know um, routinely would buy sugar buns and saffron buns um, in the morning so as to slip them to the poorest children as they went in at the school gates because mm -hmm. she knew there were, I mean, she was an amazing woman, mm -hmm. I think. I get all choked up. I know, it's lovely. <laughs> Thinking lovely. about her. Um, who would like to ask Patrick a question? Uh, we've got a microphone which is going to row Wonderful. a roving microphone. I've got a purple if arm down here. You can wait till it's there. And, and don't be worried if the microphone screams. This microphone has developed a screech. Um, we just also, don't it, worry if it's it wet. It's uh, <laughs> disinfectant. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could all use just that further don't worry. on in our lives. <laughs> okay, um, because you were working from existing documents written by Charles, did you consider the first person at all 
or would that not have worked with what you wanted to do with I, it? I considered it very, very briefly, but I am not a first-person writer. I've only ri I've written one novella in the first person, and it does, just doesn't suit me. I'm a very old-fashioned writer. I like the past historic and the third person because I like that sense of... I suppose what I like, actually, is for you not to notice that you're reading. That's my ideal. I want you to just go through the window of, of what's on the page and be in the story. And for me, those two devices, the third person and the past historic, are so normal as to be invisible, I hope. Mm, okay. Whereas every time I try something different, like present tense or first person, I think, oh, they're going to notice they're reading. And I don't, I don't want that. Okay. Um, but it's an interesting point. Mm. And, and I, I was also, in Charles's case, I was feeling so nervous and daring to kind of write as him as it was. So mm. first person would have been a step yeah. too far. As part of my research, I actually got to spend a week um, sleeping in Laura's bed. Um, in, in I, I, I had a week at, at Cyprus Well. They, they let poets stay there, and I, was, I managed to get in through the back door as a, a poetry-interested novelist. Um, and that was pretty intimidating, you know, lying there, thinking my thought, my very intrusive thoughts about Charles and Laura, thinking, well, this was her bed. Um, did you write in strange. there? Did you do any writing while you were there? I did, uh -huh. I did. And actually, one of, the, one of the chapters in the book only arose because of my time in the house, because there was a, a mysterious portrait, which Charles clearly bought at some point, of um, a late middle-aged woman um, at, at tea. She's on her own at a tea table with a... a a very identifiable service of um, a teapot, a teacup, and a little plate, and a, a rather strange cake. Um, and nobody could tell me, none, no one in the trust knows where this painting came from or who it was by. So I have a chapter where it's actually painted for Laura, um, although it's not really of her, but it could be her, by a, a German prisoner of war who she befriends. Um, so it was a very useful stay, actually. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And the uh, very attractive turquoise gilet there? <laughs> Worn by a very attractive person. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I love Eden Rock, uh, even though it often reduces me to tears. Yeah. But do, do you have a favourite, probably a difficult question, a favourite Causley poem? <sighs> there are a clutch of them. Eden Rock is one of them. And Angel Hill, to a lesser extent. Eden Rock, for those of you who don't know it, is a a late Causley poem, which he wrote, I think, after his mother's death and when he was first, he had his own first brush with serious illness. So his sense of mortality is, is keen. And in the book, it's very strange because Eden Rock is not an identifiable place. And many readers argue about where it, where it is. But it's a dream poem, I think, in which he dreams being in this strange, unearthly place and seeing his mother and father with a picnic waiting for him on the other side of a bit of water. <laughs> so getting choked up. <laughs> um, it's an amazing poem, and it's a poem I always recommend to people who have recently lost a parent, because it's powerful stuff. Sorry. Ah, I'm going to have to get used to this, because if I'm going to promote this book, I can't cry every <laughs> time I talk about this poem. Thank you. It was a lovely question. Have I got another one? Oh, God, sorry. I'm not crying, really. Yes. <laughs> yes. Don't, you can ask him anything. If he just cries, he just yeah. cries. Yeah. That's, just, that's, that's show business. <laughs> Don't feel shy. We'll both cry together, Patrick. 
I've got one question and something else I want to say. Um, the question is, I think what makes Charles Causey so special for me is in his strange, extraordinary use of words. So I think of like a blitz of a boy is Timothy yeah. Winters. Extraordinary, you know, it, it just stops you in a way that does. How much of that did you try and work into the book? Oh, a lot, a lot. I, I, I actually made a list of vocabulary from some of his poems and just peppered them in here and there. But I didn't want to be too self-conscious about it. I didn't want the reader to say, oh, that's the scene from that poem. But what I ultimately tried to do was to make Charles the child and Charles the teenager and Charles the young man really attentive. Because for me, the thing about his poems that makes them so special is the power of his attention. And I think, again, that's where he's a bit like a novelist. He's um, really, he notices stuff, Yes, I think. And I, I, think, I think that's why the poems are so accessible as well, because the language is very direct. It's not, it's not fancy language at all. It's the language of a, the, you know, the man in the street. But every now and then, as you say, a blitz of a boy, he'll pick one little word that gives a kind of flick to the line. And technically, the poems are incredibly clever, because although they often have really complex structure, he's smoothed all that out so that you don't notice it, unless you're a fellow poet, I think. But, you know, a really good technician. And I think, actually, um, at the risk of going into another rant about Causley, <laughs> I, I think he was hugely patronized by the establishment, partly because he never went to university, partly because he chose to write very much about his world, this small world in Cornwall and the Cornish scene. So he gets almost written off by a lot of his contemporaries as a kind of balladeer, you know, this country bumpkin, um, which is hugely to underestimate the, the vigor of the poems and their, their moral anger as well. Um, sorry, end, end of rant, but yeah. Okay. Read more Causley if you don't yet. Can I just say, be allowed to say, this isn't a question, I just want to say something. Um, I had the pleasure of driving Louise Doughty to Bobbin Park this, uh, Parkway this morning and um, I asked her a question and said, you know, how do you make money? She said, well, mostly it's the advance. And I said, well, what's the best form of book that I can buy? And she said, well, it doesn't work like that because you get a percentage, as you both know. But the percentage is whatever the price is. So if Amazon chooses to put it out at 90p as a loss leader. But she said, the very, very best thing, if you want to support a writer, the very, very best thing you can do is to pre-order the book. <laughs> because it... <laughs> That drives all, it goes in the first week sale. I'm only quoting what she says, Patrick could disagree. It goes in the first week sale and it drives all the algorithms that drive yeah. the... Pr so yeah, Louise, is, Louise so is very, very jammed up on this. Yeah, it's so, so if I could just put in a big <laughs> plug for Patrick, because we, we all support Patrick, yeah. we all love him in lots of different ways, but you want to support him, pre-order the book. <laughs> pre-order the book. Well, now people often ask this. They say, what, what a best, how a bestseller list worked out. And it's entirely done by um, a certain type of, of, of till, basically, and by the online sales. And it's all about the first week. So if every writer needs to achieve a certain number of sales in the first week. So a, a pre-ordered book is a first week sale. Thank you, David. Thank you. I didn't pay him anything for the same <laughs> That's wonderful, thank you. Do I have another one? While I'm waiting, I will ask Patrick, I always want to know this when I read novels, what is seed cake? 
Seed cake is delicious. I'm like, next time you come to visit the farm, I'm making a seed cake. <laughs> it's a very, it's probably, do, did any of you have seed cake when you were children? Yeah. It's, it's of a, a very much a, po a wartime post-war thing. It's caraway seed flavored, and it's just egg and sugar and butter. A good seed cake made with duck egg so, and good butter, so it's really yellow, and then flecked with these seeds. But it's, it's a marmite among cakes, because if you don't like little things getting stuck in your teeth or you don't like the taste of caraway, you won't like it. Well, I, I mean, I'm just always, the sort of novels I like, someone's always eating a bit of seed cake, and I'm yeah. always there's a lot of There's a lot of baking in this book, and there's a lot of laundry. <laughs> I, I, had, I had to do a lot of research into 1920s, 1930s laundry techniques. And, what, and, and like, it was such hard work. Before a washing machine, I mean, yeah. So there's a lot of detail, and then most of it had to come out of the book, so it wouldn't bore you. Well, I, was, I love a bit of laundry. Uh, and, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I really do. <laughs> and I was currently, I'm researching church laundry, so it was very exciting. Oh, good, I know, good, yeah, okay. Really <laughs> um, do we have a last question for Patrick? We've only got a couple of minutes you left. don't have to ask about this book. We can talk about other books or whatever. Or I'll ask him a question I love hearing the answer to. I'm going to do it myself. Patrick, tell us about your routine. Ages ago when I interviewed you at Waterstones Truro, my friend Nina Stibby and I were in the audience, and afterwards we said, I think we're writing novels all wrong. We should just try it the Patrick way. <laughs> so perhaps you... And then I think we both went up, uh, up, tore up a draft, tried to do it your way, failed, went back to our <laughs> way. <laughs> Such is the creative process. You well, you're a novelist now, so it works. You t tell me, um, tell me how you. I'm very old-fashioned. I write in ink, which is weird, um, but I'm glad to see it's growing. I keep hearing young writers saying, "Oh, I'm I'm an inky writer now. We're mm -hmm. a little band of inky writers," because I happen to think that your brain works. Well, my brain works at the speed of my handwriting. Mm -hmm. I'm a very fast typist. All those childhood piano lessons made me a very fast typist. And I, I type too fast for my brain, um, and I end up typing gibberish. So I write in longhand, and I also write at, from two ends of the book at once. So one end of the notebook is the finished book, or the f an attempt at the finished prose. But the other end is all my thoughts and my research and whatever. And then eventually those two bits meet in the middle, and I put it down and pick up another notebook and start again. So it's. It's, there's a constantly building quarry, I suppose. It's what George Eliot called it, which is a, a sort of messy compost heap of ideas, character names, possible titles, the occasional shopping list, because I needed a bit of paper and forgot to tear it out. Um, it's a very messy, organic process. And I try to write with the computer turned off, so I won't be distracted by mm -hmm. kittens in fancy dress and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> and then at what point... Um, what point then does the computer get turned on? When I finish the first draft, mm -hmm. I then have to decipher my terrible handwriting. Emma Bates here, who is our resident graphologist, and you may still have a chance to book a session with her, analyzed my handwriting and was horribly truthful about it. <laughs> um, but it, it is very bad handwriting. But I, I do, yeah, I type it myself because no one else could read it. And it's my handwriting is so bad that sometimes I, I have a big magnifying glass on my desk because sometimes I'll, I'll spend 30 minutes looking at one word that's clearly crucial because it'll, be, <laughs> it'll say something like, you know, the only thing she could not abide was his <laughs> and, and it's something I've written months before. I have no idea what it was. 
Um, and do you, are you editing at that stage, or are you just transcribing? I'm trying only to transcribe, and then I, but I do inevitably because of the illegible bits. Mm. I do edit a bit, um, and then I print it all out, and I do another draft using a pen only on the printout. Mm -hmm. um, and there's often a lot of moving around as well. I've learnt to print the chapters out separately because I frequently move my chapter order mm -hmm. around. This book didn't begin the way it began in that reading. Originally, it began very, very quietly with Laura meeting her, her, her Charlie, as he mm. was called, in Tinmouth. Um, and my editor quite rightly said, bit quiet. <laughs> 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 so we jump into the middle of a battle scene with severed hands on decks. Yes. Just, just to show the chaps who are reading that it will buck up later. Yeah. <laughs> Quiet's one of those funny words that it kind of doesn't sound like an insult, but it's never good, is it? <laughs> yeah, oh <laughs> God, it's terrible. <laughs> well, I think my novels go up and down like this. I think that you react against your last novel. Mm -hmm. And so every other novel of mine is what I think of as a quiet one. So um, Take Nothing With You is a quiet book. You know. um, I was very happy with it, but it's quiet. You know, it's, it, it's domestic. Yeah, because I, I like the domestic, so I'm all for the quiet. Um, we've come to the end of our time. It's been an utter delight. Thank you to all of you being here. I'm Patrick sorry I'm not Rachel Joyce. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Patrick will be signing copies of Take Nothing With You, which is a wonderful novel, in the book tent. And you can pre-order this book. And, of course, we all know now, thanks to our friend in the red baseball cap, how useful that is. Um, and I may see some of you later. I'm interviewing Ed Parnell later on. His book, Ghostland, is oh, awfully good. It's and when I was reading Ghostland, I thought of Eden Rock, that mm. poem, and thought, actually, in some ways, Ghostland is a very long version of Eden yeah. Rock, yeah. partly. So maybe I'll see some of you later on in the church. Um, but it's been a complete pleasure. And would you join me in giving yourselves for being so nice and Patrick Gale a big round of applause. Thank you very much.